The New Jerusalem. It's a wonderful, wonderful subject. Couldn't be a better subject that I know of. Um, I've been there many times. And you think I'm joking. But before I'm through, I want to make it very clear that I'm not really joking. I didn't tell the whole truth. But as a matter of fact, the last time I experienced the New Jerusalem was last night. It was the strangest scene. I'm in a new parish. I've never been a parish priest in all my life until the last seven and a half years. I've run around the world, uh, you know, particularly this country over most of my life uh, as what Metropolitan Philippines says, Father John, you are an evangelist. And that's probably true, but I, I, I took a parish seven and a half years ago. We started it. And uh, property values, wait a minute, wait a minute. I don't want a side view. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's going to be bad. You better get one more. <laughs> no, you're trying to trick me. I have a very long pointed nose. When we were bishops, <clears throat> we were bishops. Are you impressed? Uh, you should be impressed. Very, very impressive. Well, that's much better. Um, we had a uh, we had a, a kid. He's grown up now. He, you know, he's married. has a, has his own family. But uh, he was trying to describe to his mother one day which bishop she'd heard. And she said, uh, the one I'm talking about is Bishop Pointy. <laughs> now, I could have killed that little, I mean, five years old and he's just, you know, I'm, I'm nasally challenged, uh, you know, problem. But <clears throat> my story about the New Jerusalem, this is extremely important. Last evening, uh, I was literally in the sanctuary, they call it the worship center of the Church of the Good Samaritan. It's an Episcopal church in San Diego. And uh, we normally use the parish hall, which was their church until they built. But um, last evening, because we also share facilities with the Newman Club on the University of California, San Diego campus, we have, we're juggled all the time. Uh, and so here I was in the worship center of uh, the Episcopal Church of the Good Samaritan at what we call the Pre-Sanctified Divine Liturgy. And very much, it was an experience of the New Jerusalem. I grew up singing a song that a number of you grew up singing. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Well, last night was at least a foretaste, if it wasn't more. As a matter of fact, I'd say, without any question, it was more. <clears throat> because, I'll tell you who was there last night. Last evening, Michael the Archangel showed up. And last night, Gabriel showed up. And last night, the Mother of God showed up. And last night, Jesus showed up. And even more importantly, the All-Holy Trinity showed up last night. And then the rest of us showed up. And we had a wonderful meal. And we heard the angels sing. We sang together with them. They didn't really join us. We really joined them. And we sang. And then we partook of Christ. I, I, this, this service, I don't know if you've all been. I'm, I'm kind of halfway assuming that at least three quarters of you, if not more, have been to a, a, a divine liturgy. And, uh, and, and I'm not trying to be presumptuous here. Uh, actually... 
I, I'll go on a little rabbit trail here. Just don't let me forget where I am. No, not you. Don't forget where I am. He can't remember, you know, one minute to the next what he's doing. Uh, he's got early Alzheimer's. He's <laughs> stage one. Now I forgot what I was going to tell you. <laughs> I started a parish in San Jose uh, back in 91, and we needed a place to meet. And uh, I went to the pastor of a Presbyterian church, and uh, he, he and I had gone to the same seminary uh, at a different time, but we'd been at the same school, and there was enough in common. I felt comfortable asking him if we could use his, his, uh, his education facility for a catechism. And he said, oh, sure. He said, but I'm very familiar with orthodoxy. He said, I went to Russia. I mean, he went to Russia back in the early 80s. And um, he said, I'm very familiar with it. He said, come over, to the, come over and look at our, our church. Come over to our sanctuary. And it was remarkable because we walked into the sanctuary. And he said, now, of course. And, and he was dead serious. And I, I'll, I'll never forget. Now, you have a camera. <laughs> I will never, ever forget this because he was so clear. He said, now, I understand the difference between this and an Orthodox church. He says, this church was built, and he said, it's okay. He said, this church was built to represent this earth. He said, this is interaction with, with, it, with, with earth. He said, having been in Russia, I understand that the church is built to be heaven. He said, I understand that your church is heaven, and I understand my church is earth. He said, I'm not apologizing for it, but he said, I certainly understand the difference. So when I say I was in the New Jerusalem last evening, or experienced it last evening, it was because we were in the church. And, you know, the astonishing thing is, to get it to work, we had to haul a lot of stuff over there. You know, every time we have to, we don't have to go often, but it's hauling the icons over. And, and, and I say it lightly sometimes, it's hauling the hardware over. Father Gordon and I have played Porta Church since we were children, I think. Uh, always hauling stuff around. And it used to be hymn books or it used to be tracks and stuff like that, though those aren't bad. Uh, but now it's, it's hauling, you know, uh, I, I suppose I hauled over $10,000 worth of hardware last night. But I loved the hardware because it gave me a taste of heaven. And even standing there, I was very conscious last evening as I stood at the altar, I was very conscious of who I was. I understood that I stood there as an icon of Christ. I'm not Christ. I understand that very clearly. But I understand that I stood there as an icon and that all that stuff that I wear, all those vestments, they aren't to make us fancy. They're just appropriate to a king. You know, that's where the vestments came from. They, you know, there was a day when the vestments didn't look that fancy. This is like a Byzantine king. Now they're kind of fancy because, you know, the president wears a coat and a tie. But all of that put together gave me this taste of heaven. And in the New Jerusalem, I want to tell you how I got there because it was not an easy journey. Where I'll start the journey tonight is in the summer, or January actually, of uh, 1969. I lived in a very lovely place. I lived up above uh, San Bernardino, California in a little town called Blue Jay. I didn't even live in the town called Blue Jay. 
The Blue Jay has become famous, you know. Some of you actually know Blue Jay. Now, when I tell you why, you'll understand, because that's where Michelle Kwan has trained over the years. And so often, you'll, when she's skating, they'll mention that she trains at this place called Blue Jay. Uh, Blue Jay probably had 200 people when we lived there. We were in the outskirts of Blue Jay. It was lovely. It was an even mile high. And it was a chance to think. It was, I had just left the Campus Crusade staff a few months before. Uh, you know, I didn't ever resign, by the way. Stacy, I didn't really resign from the Campus Crusade staff. Never have, actually. My friend, Father Peter Gilquist, resigned me. <laughs> Uh, that, that's actually what happened. He just wait, he, he resigned, and, and uh, Bill Bright said, "Anybody else going?" And he says, "John Braun's going too," and that was the end of that. But I had a chance to live up there, and it really did start in Sages, and uh, it was the Sages was a powerful thing, the strawberry pie notwithstanding, because it was at Sages that we became uh, is it is enamored the word obsessed is almost the word with the church. Whatever the church was, we were convinced that's where we had to be. And, you know, you, you may decide differently where you see the church. Uh, I knew that whatever I was doing, it wasn't exactly. I didn't think what I was doing was bad. It just wasn't church. We had another name. We didn't call it church. We called it parachurch, which means alongside the church. That's what we called ourselves. That's fair. I didn't want to be parachurch. I wanted to be church. And uh, it was January of 1969, and we, we rented a house up there. We rented it for $150 a month. I imagine it would be about $2,000 a month right now. I don't know how we got this place. Now, you were there uh, several times. But uh, I was sitting downstairs. Uh, there was an apartment downstairs and then a lovely home upstairs. And I was sitting downstairs, and... Something occurred that just is astonishing. In the book of Revelation, and I'll read this for you in a bit, St. John says, I, John, saw. And that morning, I, John, saw. I saw something that was life-transforming. Stace may ask me a while ago when I became a Christian. My reply to her was, I never remember when I did not believe. I was brought up right. I was taught in utro. That's, I'm dead serious. Uh, my parents committed me to Christ when they found out I was conceived. I wasn't, my mother wasn't supposed to have any more children. And uh, my mother never experienced a day without pain from the morning I was born until the day she died. There was great sickness in the family. But I was raised properly. There was never a day I was not taught. I used to pray that we wouldn't have days where I was taught. I would virtually pray that we'd have days when we didn't pray. But there were none. We prayed every day. Mama read the Bible, Daddy read the book, and, uh, and, and Johnny would pray. We would all pray. I mean, I, I read the Bible, Dad read the book, and Mom read the names of the missionaries we were praying for. But I said, in the course of that, uh, along my life, there were some important times 
and that in high school I made a, 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 what I would call an irrevocable, irrevocable commitment to Christ. But on this particular morning in January of 1969, I saw something. I saw, however you can see it, in the eyes of the heart, I saw the New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Now you have to understand something. St. John said, I saw it. I'm actually pretty good at grammar. And I even understand grammar and syntax pretty well. We were pretty well taught in adulthood by Father Jack Sparks. And I understand that saw in English is a simple past. John says, I saw it. He didn't say, I will see it. He said, I saw it. I saw it coming down out of heaven from God. And I'm going to read it to you the way it happens. I'm going to read the whole story. Revelation chapter 21. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now, I'm going to do this, because I think this is how it's happened. Uh, and I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. And he shall dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them. And he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall no longer be any death. There shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. I'll stop there for just a moment. I'll finish the story. I'm a goal-oriented man. I always have been. If I don't know where I'm going, I don't get anywhere. And it was terribly important for me, especially at that time in my life, to know where I'm going. And I had to have a reason to make life worth living. I do not want to make light of this, but in the last two years before that, I'd probably spoken to about a quarter of a million college students. You couldn't be any more successful, but I was empty. I wasn't empty in my heart as far as God was concerned. It wasn't what I was after. There was something that had to be more. And I had to be going somewhere. I didn't want to be a super collegiate speaker. That was not my goal. I didn't want to be some great Bible teacher. That wasn't enough. I wanted to go somewhere. And that morning, I saw where I wanted to go. Because I don't think I saw it the way John saw it. I don't think this John saw it the way that John saw it. Because I think he had a lot better perception than I did. I think he was one of the most pure men who has ever lived in all the history of the world. And I'm not one of those. I don't think I saw it the way he did. But I got a glimpse. And I saw where I wanted to go. And I can tell you from January of 1969 until, what is this, 
April the 11th, 12th, whatever, 2002. It's never changed. That's where I want to be, and that's where I want to go. And I'm going to take every one of you I can with me to get there. Because that's really what counts. To live in this world of suffering and sorrow and pain and grief is just beyond comprehension. For the last several days, including uh, the trip today, I've read one of, the, uh, one of the most remarkable books I've read in a long time. I read a great deal. And this, I've, I've read since I lived in the South. I, I was born and raised in California, but I lived in the South for seven years. I lived in Miami, I think that's South, for two years. And I lived in Atlanta for five. And I became extremely interested in the war between the states, extremely interested in Civil War history. Father Gordon took me out to the Battle of Franklin, and uh, I've been to most of the Civil War sites that, uh, that, are, that are available, and I've read a great deal. I just finished a book uh, called uh, April 1865. It's the best book I've ever read on the Civil War, but what, what, what it left me with was great grief. 650,000 men dead. Incredible. 650,000 dead men, and they were the ones that were probably the best off. The wives and the children that were left from them, both north and south, the agony, the grief, the sorrow, the pain. If this is all it is, you can keep it all, even the best of it. And the winner didn't fare much better than the loser. Because the pain was just as great in the north as it was in the south. When dad's missing, it hurts just as much in the north as it does in the south. And all of that I could see that morning. It's all going to be gone. All those first things that passed away. Well, we got to get there. We're not going to get there this way. I might make that hour and a quarter, three quarters, by the way. When did I start? 6.30, you said, right? You're a liar. <clears throat> turn two pages at a time. The loud voice is over. And he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Some more grammar. He doesn't say, Behold, I will make all things new. He said, Behold, I am making all things new. Doing it right now. Of course, he made that clear, didn't he, on the night of the Last Supper? In my Father's house are many mansions, and were not so I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am there you may be also. He's preparing the place. He's making all things new. It's all being done. The new Jerusalem is being built. I am making all things new. And he said, write, for these words are faithful and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. No question about who that is. That's Jesus. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of water of life without cost. He who overcomes shall inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. I understood that morning, too, that there was a division. I understood there were going to be those that overcame, and I understood there were going to be those who didn't overcome, and that the division was incalculable. And that to be on the wrong side of the divine was not acceptable. 
I had to be on the right side. I had somehow to be an overcomer. I wasn't sure what an overcomer was. All I knew in those days is that there were, there were, there were groups that called themselves overcomers. Whatever they were, I was pretty sure they weren't the overcomers because they always seemed to want to fight. Uh, it seemed like they were always being the overcome rather than the overcomers, but whatever one was, I wanted to be one. But for the cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, and murderers, and immoral persons, and sorcerers, and idolaters, and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Whatever that was, I sure didn't want to be in that either. And I understood, as I say, a division. Then the story gets much more graphic. And one of the seven angels, who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, and I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. I can just see it. Can't you just see an angel coming up to you? Come here. Hey, kid. <laughs> Come here. Come here. What would you do if you had an angel show up with you? Come here. But what he said is remarkable. Come here, and I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. I knew when I read that, I knew who it was. I actually really did know the Bible pretty well. I didn't have to be told at that moment. I didn't have to go to a concordance and look it up. I knew who the bride was. I knew who the wife of the Lamb was. That part I understood. I just didn't understand her grandeur. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain. And he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her brilliance was like very costly stone, as a stone of crystal clear jasper. You know, this is a remarkable passage, even as far as I have read it. Because John sees the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And she is the bride because the angel said, I'm going to show you the bride, the wife, and the lamb. Come here, I'm going to show you. And this is what he sees. So it's obviously he sees her. And she has the glory of God. And those of you who are well equipped in the Old Testament, you remember in the, when the children of Israel left Egypt, they had the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. And, and, and we call this the glory of God, the Shekinah, the glory of God. And, and then when the tabernacle in the wilderness was built, you know, and it was dedicated and, and the fire and the light and the, the glory came down and it entered the tabernacle and it did in Solomon's temple too. And when it left, it was Ichabod. The glory has departed, which is what Ichabod means. And this glory, the glory of God, she possesses this. The bride of Christ, she possesses the glory of God. She's got this holy glow. <clears throat> when we first began examining the Orthodox Church, you know, Father Gordon and I and several others, we, we studied, as he said, we, and we read the, the fathers of the church, and particularly the apostolic fathers. And then uh, Father Richard Ballou, he got into reading... Uh, the what what are called the uh, what what we call the literally the church fathers especially he got into Saint Athanasius and and so on and we ran into a term that really bothered us 
We had a lot of trouble becoming orthodox. One of our problems, one of our problems was the was the four-letter M word. There were a lot of four-letter words we had trouble with. There was the four-letter M word, that was Mary. The four-letter I word, that's icon. And there were there were problems, but uh, deification. We ran into a concept, and then we understood that the church had believed, and, and you know, I actually had taught it for many years. I started teaching it about my fourth year in Campus Crusade, except I taught it as something that would be future, that, that we would be united fully to Christ uh, in His glorified humanity. But we struggled with this concept because, well, how could a human being, how could humanity have the glory of God? Well, she has it. Because here she comes down and she possesses the glory of God. And, uh, and then he describes her. I'll take the last verse. I was in 21 and 11 and I'll take it again just so you have the context. She has the glory of God and her brilliance was like a very costly stone. As a stone of crystal clear jasper. And by the way, it doesn't necessarily name the stone here. Sometimes I've actually wondered, is there a gem that we don't even understand yet? Of which all the gems we know are just pictures of a more grand and glorious gem. A created thing that is just a type, a picture of something that's not created. Because I'll guarantee you the glory of God is not created. But we have these, we have these marvelous stones to give us an idea. And then... <clears throat> She had this, uh, the costly stone as a stone of crystal clear jasper. And then it had a great and high wall, or she had a great and high wall, with 12 gates, and at the 12 gates, 12 angels. And names were written on them, which are those of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, three gates on the west. And the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones. And all of them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Are you visualizing this in your mind right now? You ought to. You need to be imagining it as best you can. you got to see this. You'll get some dimension to it in a few minutes. Now, we'll, we'll get some, uh, we'll get some, some yards and, or cubits. We'll, we'll get some measurement to it. Though I imagine that's figurative. It's big. But you have to see this. Uh, at least seek to grasp it. And it's coming down out of... It's moving. It's in motion. Coming down out of heaven from God. With this great and high wall. And uh, with these found, 12 foundation stones and these gates. Uh, and uh, we'll, we'll get... It gets more graphic. And the one who spoke with me, that is the angel. This is funny, I think. Had a gold measuring rod to measure the city. Its gates and its wall... And the city is laid out as a square. Its length is as great as its width. And he measured the city with a rod. 1,500 miles its length. And its width and height are equal. Folks, this is a very large city. It is a 1,500 mile cube. I have no idea what this really means. I imagine there's some figurative speech here. Uh, I don't know how you really measure this, though. There's a cute thing in here that'll come up. That's why I say it's funny about measurement. 1,500 miles cubed. 
this grand and glorious city in motion coming down out of heaven from God. John saw it. Little John saw it. At least a little bit of it. And, I, and he measured its wall. 72 yards according to human measurements, which are also angelic measurements. I thought that was sort of a nice little quip. 72 yards according to human measurements, which are also angelic measurements. Though this was in cubits. But I guess angels are, sort of have to stick with the same kind of measurements we do. At least we go the same way. I would say the wall's pretty thick. 72 yards just for the wall. Now hang on to this. This is not an important stuff. 1,500 miles cubed, wall 72 yards thick. Very important. This is not just trite stuff. And the material of the wall was jasper. And the city was pure gold like clear glass. I have never seen gold like clear glass. This is gold. A friend of mine in Atlanta had it made for me. Pure gold. But it's not like crystal clear. Not at all. This is going to show up on the tape. Better move this up. Oh, we get two. Okay. <clears throat> now, what are you doing? Do you always have to mess around? <laughs> And the material of the wall was jasper, and the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundation stones of the city were adorned with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation stone was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophase, the eleventh jason, the twelfth amethyst, and the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each one of the gates was a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in it. For the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine upon it. For the glory of God has illumined it. And its lamp is the Lamb. I'm going to stop there just for a minute before I finish reading the account. This is an important place. There's no, there's no sunlight there. There's only the glory of God. It lightens up the whole place. And its lamp is the Lamb. I do not know how many centuries now, every single night, for, I don't know, I do not know when Christians started singing gladsome light of the holy glory of the, of the Father immortal. You know, the sad thing is many Orthodox Christians who sing that regularly or hear it sung regularly have no idea what they're singing. They do not know that when they sing gladsome light, they're speaking of Jesus. He is the gladsome light of the holy glory of the Father immortal. In the creed, we say of him, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made of one essence with the Father. Light of light, the Father's light, the Son is light. That's why we sing gladsome light. 
They got it out of Revelation 21. And they got it out of Exodus and Leviticus too. He is the light. But he's not just the light. Jesus is the gladsome light. He's the... How many Greeks are here? How do you sing it? Tell me. Fos, fos hilarion. Hilarious light. I mean, that's a little trite. But that's where we get the English word hilarious. Gladsome light. Hilarious light. So we, the word hilarious has gained a few little bit of baggage, so it's not quite accurate anymore the way it's been brought into English. But he's the light. And we sing about him. And we got it from here. Okay. And the nations shall walk by its light. And the kings of the earth shall bring their glory into it. And in the daytime, for there shall be no night there, its gates shall never be closed. And they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. And nothing unclean. And no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. There's the picture of the New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. What you have seen in what I've read to you this evening is what will be unto the ages of ages. That is where it ends. Except you can't say it ends because ends has to do with time and there's no time there. I also grew up singing, when the trumpet of the Lord shall sound, and time shall be no more, and the morning breaks eternal, bright and fair. They got that out of there too, because there won't be any time. So there isn't any end. It's why the gates never close. It's why there's no night there. It's just light all the time. It's the light of the glory of God. And this is what will be forever. And it is difficult for us to conceptualize, and I, I admit, probably much of what I have read is, is in imagery, it's in picture, because St. Paul says, I has not seen, neither has ear heard, neither has it entered the heart of man, the things that God has prepared for those who love him. And this is what is being prepared for those who love him. And so our eye really can't see it, and our ear really can't hear it, uh, we just can't comprehend it. We just get these glimpses, these little flashes of light that come to us of what is going to be forever. And folks, believe me, it is well worth it all. If that's where we're going to end up. If to end up were to get the greatest glory that there is on earth, I would consider life to be a great failure. I would consider life to be a bad joke, to quote one philosopher that isn't even funny. I would consider it a game that you have to play but you can't win. Because no matter how good it goes, it always ends in death. And it doesn't only end in death for you, it ends in death with those you love. And death is the great enemy. It's the last great enemy to be overcome. And what you saw today is after death is overcome. Well after death is overcome. Well, now we've got to do a little bit more. We've got to take one more step tonight with the city of God. And we're going to go to, uh, first, to Peter's first letter. 
And we're going to go to 1 Peter chapter 2 because we've got to understand a little bit about the city. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisy and envy and all slander like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the word that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. I suppose I memorized that when I was probably about 12. But I didn't memorize what came after. If you have tasted the kindness of the Lord and coming to Him, now listen, coming to Him, Him's Jesus, coming to Him as a living stone. You got it? A what kind of stone? A living stone. Coming to Him as a living stone. You got to have that. Rejected by men, but choice and precious in the sight of God. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Give me another name for a spiritual house. Synagogue. Church, temple, synagogue. What John saw was a temple. That's what he saw in the New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. He saw a temple. What's the temple made of? What, what was it made out of when we read it in the book of Revelation? Precious stones, is that not right? And he names a dozen of those precious stones, plus pearls, plus gold, and plus some other kind of stone that, that uh, it seems incomprehensible to even name. Jesus in the wilderness was a stone, was he not? He followed them, and Peter speaks of it, and Peter speaks of it here as a living stone, choice and precious in the sight of God. He is the most precious of all stones. He's more precious than a ruby. He's more precious than a diamond. He's more precious than gold. He's more precious than silver. He's more precious than any of those other things that are precious. You also, as living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house to offer spiritual sacrifices. I cannot tell you how many Sunday mornings as I stand at that altar and I say, Thine own of thine own we offer unto thee in behalf of all and for all. That I realize what I'm doing. I'm offering a spiritual sacrifice acceptable to God. What am I offering? What are we offering? Thine own of thine own. What's thine own of thine own? Jesus is thine own of thine own. Thine own is the Father. Thine own of thine own is the Son. What are we offering? Occasionally somebody, isn't so much anymore, but people used to say, oh, you're Catholics and you're Orthodox, all a bunch of pagans, you know, you're not even Christians. Yeah, I didn't believe we were Christians. I, you know, I grew up thinking Catholics couldn't possibly be Christians, and I, I didn't even know what an Orthodox was, but if I did, I'd guarantee you he couldn't be a Christian. Because they did that dumb thing with the Mass, because they did that, that Eucharistic thing. They did that liturgy thing, and that's not Christian. Even though the church has been doing it since the day of Pentecost. 
Somebody forgot to tell me that. No, somebody deliberately didn't tell me that and knew it. It wasn't my dad. I don't think he knew. That's some professors I know knew. They just didn't want to tell. They didn't want the secret out. Living stones to offer up a spiritual sacrifice acceptable to God. You know, so often on a Sunday morning, my parish is, is, uh, is a, I call it house blend. Uh, in Goleta, or Santa Barbara, we were all converts. Every one of us, though, were all converts to Orthodoxy. Well, there were about 250 there when we made the switch. But I don't think anybody had been raised Orthodox. Later, a, a, one Arabic family came, and, and those that are still living are still there. Then I went to San Diego, and I started with, I'm probably about 55% cradle and about 45% convert. And one of the big problems is to get us all to behave like living stones, offering up a spiritual sacrifice. It isn't just the priest that offers this up. It's we who offer it up, and it's getting everyone to participate. And those of you who are involved in the mission here, or wherever you go, you need to get into it. It's, it's, it's thine own of thine own. We offer unto thee. Not I offer unto thee. We offer unto thee on behalf of all. And for all, and there's no one but Jesus who qualifies to be on behalf of all and for all. He's the only one. And he is what is offered. He is the once for all sacrifice. We're not re-offering him. We're just joining in an eternal offering. Because we also, as living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, quoting the Old Testament, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him shall not be disappointed. This precious value then is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And our stone, Jesus, has been a stumbling stone ever since and a rock of offense to many. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word and to this doom they were also appointed. But you, you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. For you, once who were not a people, but are now the people of God, you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Okay, now we're going to tie this together, at least for this evening. It doesn't mean I'm almost done. It means we're going to start tying it together. John saw the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. He saw this city, which is a temple. And, and a temple that's inhabited by the Holy Trinity. A, a, a temple in which the very Son of God Himself is its light. He saw this. He saw this temple that is made out of precious stones. This entire city, this 1,500-mile cube with its 72 yards. We have not finished those 72 yards yet. He saw all of this coming down. But now, what is this? 
What really is it? Did he see this punchline, by the way? So hang with me now. This is the punchline. Did he just see a bunch of precious stones, uh, like the semi-precious stone there, uh, or the precious stones in some of your rings? Is that what he saw? A city that's made out of that kind of stuff? No, he saw a city that was made out of living stones because that 1,700-mile cube is made out of people. It's made out of the people of God. They're the stones. You are the stones. We are the stones. You know, I can just see it. I've got a little masonry block wall in front of my house. A couple of them have fallen out. Got to fix them. And they just sit there, held together by mortar. This city, the stones aren't held together by mortar. These stones, the stones are living. And I tell you, stand up. I need you. And he will understand this. We both understand this really well. You know how... We've learned to fit together. You know, we really do fit together well. Because he will tell you and I will tell you, we have really rubbed against one another. We screamed and yelled. We did. We threatened. We carried on. And you know what happened? We didn't need mortar to hold us together. You can't take us apart. We're joined together so tightly it's impossible to, to, to move us. We don't know where the space is. I don't know if he's Jason, that I'm Amethyst, or backwards, or forward. I have no idea. Whatever it is, he's precious stone, I'm precious stone. And we got, we got joined together by, by rubbing together, by jostling together. Uh, and we made it. We made it. You're an old stone. You're an old cold stone. You see, that's what happens when the people of God get together. You know, sometimes people complain about church life being so hard. Well, of course it's hard because we're people. And we have to learn how to be precious stones. We, we have to learn we're precious stones. We need to, we need to learn, and that's part of the problem, isn't it? We need to learn how to behave like it. And we work together. And we're built up into a spiritual house. We are the temple of the living God. What John saw coming down out of heaven was a temple, a city, made out of people. People transformed to the glory of God. I don't want to be trite. These aren't people that are just born again. That's not the goal. Born again is the beginning. When you were born the first time, you were just a little thing. And you weren't good for much but to get everything wet and messy. And you had to be taken care of. And many times in contemporary Christianity, we've made being born again the goal. And of being born again to your goal, you haven't even got the glimpse of the thing yet. You're not even really basically on board other than maybe just a dribbling infant. 
That's where it starts. But it's not where it finishes, and it's not where it progresses. What is happening? You put these two scriptures together, it's so easy. What is happening is that we are being built up. As you're sitting there right now, you are being built up. Right now, He who is in the heavenlies is preparing a dwelling place. How wide is the wall? 72 yards. 72 yards of what? 72 yards of redeemed, glorified humanity. Joined to Jesus Christ in His glorified humanity. I don't know what that really means. I don't have the eyes to see that. All I know is it's grand and glorious and it's what's forever. And I know this because it's the bride of Christ. It's the church. That's the church. St. Paul called himself a wise master builder. We all are builders. Because we participate with him who is the builder of builders. He's builder and builder of builders. <laughs> because the Father is, in a very real sense, a builder. And the Son is builder of builders. But we also, having been born into the family of God, we too become builders. We become part of this whole thing. Now to take the dangerous step. <clears throat> Why did we become orthodox? Well, the story is sort of, he didn't tell this part of the story. Uh, I don't know what else you would expect, Stacy, from X7, Seven Campus Crusade staff. You, you, you know, it's, it's sort of a gutsy thing you do. Uh, we did stuff in, uh, we, we did stuff in those days no one else did. Just no one else did it. What, we were so brave. I think that's because we were stupid. <laughs> but we sure did some fun stuff. Uh, but... We studied and studied and studied. And as we studied the scriptures, we came to the conclusion, oh my goodness, we know what happened to the church. What he said is absolutely correct. We, we wanted to find out what happened after St. John breathed his last breath. That's what we wanted to find out. And so we set out in earnest to find out what happened when he died. I've often said this in jest. Do you know what happened? The day St. John died? Do you know what happened? They put in a conference call. All over the entire empire. A conference call to all the bishops. And they said, Hallelujah, he's dead. The last of them is gone. Now we can ruin it. That's what I was taught. That's what you were taught. I was taught this in the theological seminary. The professor said that's what happened. The day he died, the church started to fall apart. If you think for a minute the church fell apart the day St. John died, you got a cheapskate savior. If he couldn't choose 12 any better than that, he's not very good. Oh, he chose 12. He chose the best. 
Whatever they were when he chose them, he made them the best. They're the foundation stones of this thing. They didn't ruin it. They stand underneath it. It's why we call it one holy Catholic and apostolic church. They're the foundation stones of the thing. Oh, Jesus is the chief cornerstone. But he's incorporated them on the very bottom of the thing. And so as we read about them and we read about those whom they taught, we call them the apostolic fathers. Do you know why we call them the apostolic fathers? Because they were taught by the apostles. And so we read Ignatius of Antioch, who probably was taught by John. We read of Polycarp. We read their writings. We read at Ignatius of Antioch and it blew our minds. My church history professor at Fuller Theological Seminary said that Ignatius of Antioch is the beginning of the Roman Catholic Church, which is an abomination. That's what he said. I could hear it today in my ears. And I sat there. I was 20 years old. I believed him. I didn't know who Ignatius of Antioch was, but he was sure one bad guy. Well, whoever the apostle that taught him was, was sure a poor apostle. No, he was taught well. The reason, by the way, my church history professor didn't like Ignatius of Antioch, this is sort of ugly. I don't mean it to be ugly, you just have to understand. The reason he said it is because Ignatius of Antioch wasn't a Presbyterian, and my church history professor was. And my church history professor knew whatever the church looked like in Ignatius of Antioch's day isn't what it looked like in his Presbyterian church. I'm not knocking Presbyterians. I grew up one. Hey, wait a minute. Somebody trying to run me off. Is that the bell? No, I you quit. Can. I got another 20 to 30, 40 minutes to go to get to an hour and 45. No, I'm done. We read those and then we came to the conclusion, do you remember this, that, oh, they, there was a church and it was called the Orthodox Church. How many of you are cradled Orthodox? Can I see your hand? Okay. Do you know what we decided at that point? You will not like this. We decided that because the Orthodox Church did not exist any longer, we would start it over. <laughs> I'm dead serious. He was the only one who had a clue the thing even existed because he had seen some of it in Israel and what he saw he did not like. I thought the, I, I knew there was a Greek Orthodox Church. I just thought it was a Catholic Church in Greece. I had no idea what the thing was, nor did I care. Whatever it was had nothing to do with God. So we were going to start it over. And then, shock of shocks, we found out it wasn't. I'll never forget the first day we met with Father Alexander Schmink. Remember we picked him up at the airport, and we had a very quick dinner on our way to the church, and he looked at us and he said, are you sure you want to become Orthodox? And we said, well, of course. And he just looked down and he said, he said, we're just so old. And by that he meant you're just going to have a lot of trouble. And if you read his diary, you'll see the little piece in there about that visit to Santa Barbara. 
All we wanted was to be a part of what God was building. I'm not saying about what everything else is tonight. I'm, I'm, I'm not even going to get into that. I'll leave that's your business. That's not mine. We don't say who's not, but we will say who is. On that January morning in Blue Jay, I knew where I wanted to go. I don't care what it costs. Frankly, I don't mind being in here talking to a relatively small group like you. Over 10,000. Because we're going to do what we do to build the city. That's where we're going. That's what it's all about. It's not about doing the liturgy right next Sunday. I get so sick of that. Yes, we want to do it right, but that's not what it's about. It just has to do with propriety in heaven. That's what it has to do with. And people being nurtured on Christ and worshiping Him and being part of this which is in process of coming down out of heaven from God, being made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. That's what you need to be committed to. You can commit to a lot of things. I'm committed to a lady I've been married to for almost 48 years. They've been married longer. He's old, she's relatively young. I value that commitment. I've got other commitments. I've got a personal commitment to him. We're not just friends. It goes way past friends. Our job is to be committed to what God is doing. In the charismatic renewal, he used to hear this phrase, the move of God, the move of God, the move of God. God does move. And I'm not saying he wasn't or wasn't there. What I do know is that God has always been moving. God's been moving in all the time on what we talked about tonight. That's his goal. That's where history is going. That's where we're going. And that's where I'm going to quit tonight. So I beat you and I beat Father Peter. be willing to listen to a few questions. I don't know if I'll answer. Father John's going to listen to some questions. Start with the lane. Hi. I'm just wondering how we know we can take, especially that story in Revelation, so literal. I, I wanted to make clear, and I probably mentioned a number, I said I'm not sure what to do with all of this. Uh, I don't know what a 1,500 mile cube is. I don't, uh, and, and, and by the way, it's not 1,500, it's 1,200 cubits. Uh, and as you know, 12 is a biblical number. And uh, I don't know what that 72, I forget how many cubits that is. Anybody happen to remember it? Uh, I don't remember, uh, I don't have the cubit Bible with me tonight. I just have the yards and inches Bible or the miles. Uh, I grant very easily 
that much of this has to be imagery. Otherwise, St. Paul is wrong when he says, eye has not seen, nor has ear heard, neither has entered the heart of man. Uh, and yet it is also St. Paul who said, I am praying that the eyes of your heart will be flooded, that you may know the hope to which you have been called. That's what we talked about tonight. That you may know the hope to which you have been called. And what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us who believe according to the working of his mighty power. Which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead. And seated him high above all thrones and dominions and principalities and powers. And names named in this age and in the age to come. And so he, his prayer is you've got to have the eyes of your heart flooded. And so, I think if we, uh, you know, there are people that have actually tried to construct something like this, uh, a mock-up of it, I think that's kind of pointless. I don't know. I, all I know is that it's, it's big, and it's precious, it's grand and glorious, and I, I'm a little tiny bit uncomfortable about using the word typological, because I think, you know, when we read the Old Testament, we like to use the word type. When we read about the tabernacle in the wilderness, we call it a type. The fathers called it a type. The Bible calls these things types and, and figures of things that are to come. When we get into the book of Revelation, I'm uncomfortable with using that word type. Uh, but we have to be, uh, you know, was this real amethyst? Could we put it in a chemical lab and take it apart? I was a rock hound in college. Uh, and uh, happened to live in a place that had a lot of, uh, it was geologically a very uh, fertile place, uh, both where I went to college and where my home was. And I loved rocks, and my brother was a rock hound, and uh, my brother was actually a professional geologist. Uh, could we take that amethyst in there? Is this the amethyst that's in some of your rings? You know, I don't think so. This is living amethyst. Uh, this is, that's, so we, uh, how do you move from, from what is stone being precious to living stones? So, but, but to say the word literal, that's where I, uh, I, here's where I use the word literally. Literally, there's something there. This is not just a figment of the imagination. I mean, this is talking about what is to be forever and ever and under the ages of ages. Uh, we, if there's time on the last time around, I'll take you to chapter 22, and we'll uh, we'll swim down the river of the water of life together. Uh, John, could it not be both literal and spiritual? And I've heard of the cube, uh -huh. but I've also pictured it more like that. 1,500 miles going up is on a mountain range, and uh, you know if it's literal. You know, that's, I, I wouldn't say that's impossible. All, all I know is, is that John sees a vision. And he sees a vision of what not will be, but of what is. That's what's important. That this is not something that isn't. This is something that is. How do I, how, how, how do we even reconcile that? Well, because uh, God doesn't live in here. Uh, anything else?
except a man be born of the water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. I hope you've quoted that many, many thousands of times. You know, Stacy, I figured, this is, this is astonishing. I figured I gave the four spiritual laws about 14,000 times uh, in my lifetime. Uh, and, uh, you know, Nicodemus came to Jesus with the same question. By the way, you know, as long as we got on this subject, uh, I understood when I was a child what uh, Jesus meant when he said to Nicodemus, except a man be born of the water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. As a child, I knew that meant baptism. I understood that. When I became an older adult, I realized I couldn't hold that because theologically, baptism was irrelevant in the church of which I was a part. We didn't even necessarily baptize. <laughs> I, this was, I was no longer a Presbyterian at the time. Presbyterians took baptism seriously. This guy took baptism seriously his whole life. I remember him trying to cut holes in the ice to dunk people in. Uh, up in Mansfield. He's crazy. He's a movie too. Uh, but this is very, the question you raise is very important. Regeneration is the work of the Holy Spirit. And it's a work uh, that God does. It's a work in which we come by agreement and in which there is a certain sense a, a participation uh, certainly of willingness, but it is a beginning. Now, birth is always a beginning. It is never the end. Uh, the mother, and we were just talking about this a few weeks ago, my fifth son was born in Atlanta, and, uh, uh, you know, I'm so old that I come from an era when they wouldn't even let the husband in the ward let alone be present at the delivery. I mean, I had to leave her at the door of the ward. I just saw her walk down a long hall in the middle of the night, and, but I, they wouldn't even let me through the door. And uh, then, and so when she had uh, Peter, uh, she was all alone, and the nurses wouldn't say anything. And she, she said to herself, she was really apprehensive, is there something wrong with my baby? And so finally she called one of the nurses and she said, is there something wrong? And she said, no, he's a beautiful baby, but we were afraid you'd be disappointed because it's a boy. <laughs> she said, I'm not disappointed it's a boy. I'm just thrilled that he's okay. But to tell you the rest of the story, uh, I went home and, and, uh, and the other, all four of the other boys were in my bed when I got home. And so uh, I woke him up and and they said, what did mom have? And I said, she had a boy. And they all cheered. <laughs> triumph. Mothers, when you gave birth to your child, you knew that something began, but your heart would be filled with grief if that child did not grow, if that child died, or if that child did not progress, if that child did not mature, if that child were not healthy, uh, and there needs to be nurture. And so uh, we must be uh, very careful that we don't mean being born again. Uh, make that the goal. As long as you brought it up. I was on the plane this afternoon thinking about this. In uh, November of 1960, I was in Tucson, Arizona, and I was petrified. When I was in college, I was not in a fraternity. Not only was I not in a fraternity, you couldn't have dragged me through the door of one. And I think I was pretty wise uh, for that, not wise in many other things. Besides, 
I was already thought uh, Marilyn Russell was the greatest thing that ever came down the walk, and I, that's all I was interested in, uh, socially speaking, was the lady that would be my wife. But I was not in a fraternity, and so I was in Tucson, and uh, I was set up to speak in the uh, in the ATO house and in the uh, Phi Delta house on this one particular evening. And uh, I had never spoken, I'd been in a fraternity, I'd been in one fraternity meeting, which I royally, royally screwed up. Uh, it's a hilarious story, but I, I almost killed the thing, dead in a mackerel. Uh, so this was my next experience, and so I got in there, and uh, I'll just tell you the ATO house story, because it, it fits with where I am here. And uh, I got up, and do, do, does Crusade still use God's plan? A thing called God's plan for your life? We had a canned presentation. It's not bad, it's pretty good. And we memorized it. You had to memorize it. You couldn't get on staff until you memorized it. And so, uh, this is their physical laws that govern the physical universe, so their spiritual laws that govern a man's relationship to God. We are not creatures of chance, we are creatures of destiny. I mean, I still know it by heart <laughs> uh, when I memorized it in 1960. That's a long time ago. I memorized easily. But anyway, I, uh, I was given a time in the, between dinner and the chapter meeting to speak, and there were 72 guys at the table, and uh, I was, uh, so I, I gave the presentation, and then when it was over, the president got up and he said, uh, they, they got up and they had a piety contest. And I remember that some glutton ate four pieces of pie in four minutes and 30 seconds. Uh, very graphic memory. And uh, then after they had that, the president got up and he said, well, if any, uh, I, you know, I'd invited the guys to meet me down in their library if they wanted to know how to know Christ as I'd spoken of him that evening. And the president said, well, if any of you guys want to go down there and meet with him, go ahead, and then we'll start the chapter meeting later. In other words, I'm not going, and if you, any of you are dumb enough to go, go. Well, I got downstairs, and there were about 60 of the 72 that were down there. And I was already blown away. And so, you know, I, I went through the four spiritual laws, and then I, I said, uh, some of you guys tonight are saying this makes sense to you. And I, I know all this by now. Uh, if you'd like to know Christ as I've spoken about him this evening, I'm going to invite you to pray with me. And uh, I did. And then I took a clipboard, and the president, by the way, was there, and I handed it to him first. I said, why don't you put your name on here, and if you prayed with me, I want to put, put, you, put a check mark by your name. And uh, when the clipboard came back, there were 58 check marks on, the, on there. I didn't walk out of the ATO house. I glided out of the ATO house. Uh, I thought, that, that night I thought, well, we just added 58 guys to the tent. Some of them had already been there. Some of them never made it. Uh, I'm not ashamed of that night. It's still a very exciting thing to me. I literally had to roll up the windows of my car because uh, I was shouting. That's very exciting. Uh, what I didn't clearly understand that night was all I had done was touch the surface. What I had proven that night was that there were 58 guys that admitted they had a hunger in their heart and that they could write. Uh, 
What happened to him? I wish I knew. I wish I knew. What I needed was church. And uh, I couldn't do that with him. It was against the rules, and I agreed with those rules. Um, being born again, you've got to be born again, or you don't see the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. You don't have the eyes to see until you get born again with spiritual eyes. But it's the beginning, not the end. Anything else? It's 20 minutes to 9. I have one question I'd like to ask you. Kind of a theological question. Ooh. But you're, you're pretty heavy. I only weigh 195. <laughs> there, is, there in Revelation right here, it also talks, not only talks about the New Jerusalem, it also talks about the heaven of the Lord. I'm curious, who do you think that, who are the people that might believe in the Lord? You know, I might try some of that tomorrow. You better be here tomorrow. <laughs> uh, that will be a little speculative, but uh, I'll risk it. I don't think I'll do that tonight, but I won't forget you. Here, take this thing away. One more. What? One more over here. from. Now, we can go forward in a Billy Graham meeting. We can pray and ask Jesus to come into our heart. If you want to do what Jesus said, you get baptized. Because that's what Jesus said. Uh, now, but to be baptized, uh, I, I remember a, a Southern Baptist friend of mine in Atlanta says, the only thing that happened to me when I got baptized is I got wet. Uh, except a man be born of the water and of the spirit. We're just talking Bible here. We're not talking about uh, uh, popular evangelical theology which says you ask Jesus into your heart to pray and you receive Christ as your personal Savior. Of course you do. Remember a Roman Catholic girl nailed me to the wall one day in, in Minneapolis. I asked her if she'd, uh, when, she, when she was born, uh, when she'd received Christ as her personal Savior. You know what she told me? Last Sunday. And I trembled. I mean, I, she didn't know it. I knew she had me. I never, she never, she'll never know. She'll never know she had me. Because I knew what she believed. We must be very careful that, you know, we must not make being born again something that's just a, a, a mechanical, I ask Jesus, I come forward in a meeting, I pray a prayer. Uh, it's, it's, if a man shall confess with his mouth and believe in his heart that God has raised him and he'll be saved. And we've got to be even careful with our terms, with our theological terms. Being born again is not identical to being saved, which is not identical to being redeemed. These are different, these are different scriptural expressions, and uh, they're very important expressions.